0: I appreciate uh, you coming back tonight and seeing so many people here, despite the Eagles game. And as I look out, I don't even see too many people trying to get a sneak at their devices. So, so you're doing well. I appreciate your, your discipline. Uh, tonight, uh, we are continuing our study of Revelation. We are looking at the churches. We're picking up where we left off before Advent. And so that brings us to the church at Philadelphia this evening. As uh, usual, we begin by looking at the description of Christ, for that uh, precedes every message to each of the churches. And it says in Revelation 3-7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. As we have been emphasizing, these beginning descriptions all come out of the vision that was given in Revelation chapter one. Uh, Each church has uh, some unique part of that vision that depicts Christ's relationship to that church, and this particular portion comes at the end of verse 18. I'll start reading at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So we have this uh, unique combination of description in the vision of having keys to death and Hades. And as it appears in Revelation chapter 3, The one who has the keys who can open or shut the doors. And so you conflate those two. And it's talking about a key to death and a key to life. So the assessment of the church. There is no negative assessment of the church in Philadelphia. Simply states, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So again, no negative assessment. The church in Philadelphia is the only church of the seven. The Christ has nothing negative to say concerning that particular church. So in that aspect, the church at Philadelphia is quite unique. The positive assessment of the church It states, I know your works, behold I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And then it states this, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So the church at Philadelphia has been faithful to God's word. It says you have kept my word. The word for kept there has two connotations. One is that they have prized, guarded, preserved God's word. They have kept it in the sense that they have preserved it. They have watched over it. They have, they have not allowed it to be changed, to be corrupted. Uh, they've kept it pure and holy. That which they teach is indeed what God's word teaches. So they have preserved God's word. And secondly, they have been obedient to God's word. They have kept his word in the sense that they have sought to follow it. Uh, They have sought to obey it. Secondly, the church in Philadelphia has remained faithful in their witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it states that not only have you kept my word and have not denied my name. So they have not been uh, afraid to identify with Jesus Christ. They are willingly uh, standing and declaring their allegiance to Jesus Christ. They have not forsaken him. Uh, They have not tried to uh, hide from their commitment to Jesus Christ. Third, the church in Philadelphia is praised for her faithfulness despite her meager resources. For it says, I know your works, but behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. You have little power. This was a church that did not possess a great deal of worldly influence. This church is not, did not exercise the place of dignity or worldly importance. Most likely, they were not large in size, nor they were comprised of the leaders in the community. There was nothing noteworthy about this church as far as the world was concerned. They had little power, a little influence, uh, little impact upon the community in terms of, as I say, what they were able to accomplish. Though they were faithful, they were, they were responsible, they were uh, Christ-honoring. Uh, D. this should be a reminder to us of where true power of the church is to be found. Uh, so often, uh, churches do have um, a lot of resources. Sometimes churches have a great deal of money. Uh, some churches are known in the community for the professional people that attend it. Attended. That's the church where local dignitaries uh, attend or you know, the professional people attend and, and they get to be known for uh, having those individuals a part of the church. Um, not so with the Church of Philadelphia. What is also important to remember is that the church at Sardis did have a reputation and influence, though it was spiritually dead. Remember the words to the church at Sardis, Revelation 3, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You had the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. So here are two very different churches, contrasted in very significant ways. The one had little power, little influence, but they were faithful, and they were preserving the word of God. Then we have the church at Sardis, who had a reputation for being alive. They were very active. They were very involved. They were well-known in the community. Uh, They had... uh, influence, but they were spiritually dead. They didn't hold on to the truth. They weren't preaching the truth of God's word. Uh, It appears they didn't even have the gospel. And yet they had a fine reputation in the community, but meant nothing as far as God was concerned. So F, so too in our day, Many of the churches that exercise the most political influence on our nation are those that, in fact, are spiritually dead. Think of where many of our national leaders attend worship when they do worship. You know, when you think of of the churches that have have prominence and prestige in our nation, they tend to be the churches that are void of the gospel. Uh, They are the churches that, that aren't really proclaiming the truth Although they have uh, wonderful facilities, uh, they tend to be old, they tend to be uh, gorgeous, and uh, they tend to be places that dignitaries like to flock to, and that that's where uh, national kinds of services are held. That wouldn't have been the church at Philadelphia, and uh, that's not where they would have gone uh, con- to conduct a national service. Three, the promise of Christ's help for the church. They are going to triumph over their persecutors. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you. Now this synagogue of Satan is not new to us. Uh, We saw that in previous churches. And uh, I'm, so I'm not going to rehearse all of that. That doesn't mean that there was actually a synagogue there that was dedicated to the worship of Satan, but rather that these were people that uh, were unintentionally following the evil one. Uh, they weren't truly worshiping him in the, as a sense, as I say, as, as devote followers, uh, but rather they were doing the work of the evil one. They say they're Jews, they lie. Meaning that they have a Jewish background, they have a Jewish history, that's their ethnicity, but they're not true Jews or they would have recognized the Messiah, they would have recognized Christ for who he was. So these are Judaizers. These are religious individuals committed to religious practices, uh, Circumcision, other issues, but they were not true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were the ones that were persecuting the Christians. Number one, they will triumph by Christ's power, they being the church at Philadelphia. Uh, Revelation three: nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they Or the Jews that are not behold, I will make them come and bow down before you. So the triumph is going to be by Christ's power. It's not going to be by their political influence. It's not going to be by their resources. They have none. But these persecutors are not going to triumph over them. They are going to triumph by the power of Christ alone. So A, it will not be because of their influence upon government. It will be by the power of God as a result of their faithfulness to the Word of God. I think, again, that's very important for us to rely upon when we think about persecution, when we think about hardship. uh, We should be placing our faith in the Lord Jesus and not in our political influence or power of worldly means. Two, they will triumph because of Christ's love for them. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but uh, but lie Behold, I will make them come, bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Here we are to learn that Christ's love for the church is demonstrated through the church's triumph and not the church's position of worldly resources. So what's going to demonstrate the fact that Christ loves them? Answer, the people are going to come come and bow before him. That's how you know God's work, and power displayed. It's not, again, in external, worldly resources. It's in the spiritual dynamic of the fact that they are going to be able to triumph over their persecutors. B, they will be rewarded for their faithfulness to God's word. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. C, So that's the reward. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. The nature of the reward. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. First it should be noted that there is an important play on words. Since they have kept his word he will keep them. So keep that in mind. That's that's a very important play on words. You have kept my word, therefore I will keep you. And if you go back, just as a reminder, what that preservation included was that they have prized, guarded preserved God's word. So God will prize, guard, protect them. They were obedient to God. He will be faithful to them. Right. So, as this unpacks, it says, because of... You have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So what is the hour of trial? Well, first of all, the hour of trial is future. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. So it's not what they are presently experiencing, but something that is still future to them. How future, it doesn't say. It could be tomorrow, it could be the distant future. But whatever it is, it's future to them, it's not yet. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. Secondly, the hour of trial is referred to in this verse as universal. For it says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So this is more than just a, a localized persecution. And there have been many localized persecutions, and we see that uh, today. Uh, There are many places around the face of this earth where Christians are going through a lot of hardship and and difficulty. We are blessed in this country, if we can put it that way, that uh, we haven't experienced a great deal of persecution as they have in other parts of the face of the earth. But this is talking about a universal persecution, not a localized one, that's coming on the whole world. Thirdly, it tells us the hour of trials is going to be testing to those that are dwelling on the earth. Uh, to try those who dwell on the earth. And the emphasis here is on this testing, on this, this trying. Uh, it will be a time to reveal who is approved of God and who is not. This is going to be an hour that is going to separate the men from the boys, as it were. This is going to be a a time that it's going to demonstrate who are the true people of God and who are not the true people of God. So with those things in mind, D, most likely, the hour of trial is the Great Tribulation. This would require that we understand the you in Revelation 3.10 as being a generic you and not simply applying to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, for the Great Tribulation hasn't happened yet. So as we, we think about that, when he says, I will keep you from this uh, time, um, we must understand that in a more generic sense, uh, a general application, uh, more than just the the people who are alive at that time, except we could argue that he kept his word because they haven't experienced Uh, you know, the the great tribulation. So uh, it could simply mean that, but it seems to be more than that. Number three, what is the promise, I will keep you from the hour of trial? Remember the play on words, since they have kept his word, he will keep them. There are two common answers that are given to that question. The first is that it refers to the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation period, the second refers to the preservation of the church through the tribulation period, which is it? Is it the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, or is it the preservation through the church? Uh, a, in my estimation, this is the best verse in the scripture to support a tri- pre-tribulational rapture. If I were going to defend that position, this is the passage I would go to do so. Uh, people have said to me, "Well you know, what, what, where would you go?" If you were going to support a pre-tribulational rapture, this is it. This is where I would try to camp out. Uh, I would focus on this particular verse. Number two, is it preserving the church through the tribulation? When taking the whole context of the book of Revelation... It seems to me that the meaning must be that the promise is to preserve through the tribulation, for elsewhere in the book of Revelation, the coming of Christ does not fit into a pre-tribulational view. My point tonight is not to argue a pre-tribulational or a post-tribulational rapture. That's not where I want to particularly go this evening. Uh, We'd have to look at a a lot of verses. My point to you is whenever you look at anything, and I always try to stress, you use Scripture, Scripture to interpret scripture. Uh, You don't want a proof text. You don't don't want just one verse and say, aha, this is what it means, and then forget about, well, we could go to Matthew, we could go to so many places. I'm going to limit myself to the book of Revelation, and I'm going to limit myself to this promise of his, his coming. So three, the coming of Christ and its accompanying events in the book of Revelation. The coming of Christ is not secretive, and is witnessed by all. Revelation 1 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all of the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Alright? So this coming is going to be visible. And it makes it clear that it's going to be visible even by those who have pierced him, and all the tribes or peoples of the earth are going to wail on account of him. So there's going to be these, these troubles that will result, okay? That doesn't fit with a pre-tribulational rapture uh, for, in that view, that secret isn't seen, isn't visible by the non-believer. B, the coming of Christ also brings judgment. Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, those of you who are astute, and if you remember what I've said through the, these things, and I don't particular not saying you're not astute, but you probably forget a lot of what I've said. I've said, I don't think that's referring to his second coming, I think that is talking about just visitation as he walks among the churches. So why did I include that? Because those that hold to a pre-tribulational rapture view this as part of that rapture. So because they use it, I'm using it to demonstrate how this fits in and doesn't work, okay? Um, So uh, I'm gonna come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So here is judgment. Revelation 2.16, I will come to you soon and war against them with a sword of my mouth. Revelation 3.3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it, repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Not coming for you, but coming against you. Uh, that's in keeping with Thessalonians. We've looked at that in times past where the thief passages are negative, not positive. Okay? You don't want him to come upon you as a thief. Uh, for that means that he will come in judgment. C, the coming of Christ brings both reward and judgment. Revelation twenty two twelve. 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one what he has done. So at this coming is going to be a time of judgment. And D, The coming of Christ is seen as a culminating act, not an initiatory act in Revelation. In other words, it's a summation. It's the end of things. It's not the beginning of things. It's not the start of the tribulation. It's the end. For notice Revelation 22, 13, 14 and following. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, even those who love and practice falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, or Jesus. So that's talking about his final coming in judgment and reigning. Four. And this is what I want to emphasize tonight. Four. What is most important is not the method whereby God will keep his people, but the fact that he will keep his people. So the issue really isn't how does he preserve us, does he take us off this earth, or does he see it through it, okay? I think he sees us through it, it fits with the whole judgment motif in the book of Exodus, where he's sending the plagues and they come upon the land of Egypt, but they don't come upon uh, the uh, Hebrew children. You see it with the ark uh, in the Noah days, He's preserved through the flood. Seems consistent to me, but the point is tonight, our hope and confidence is in God who promises to keep us, to preserve us. And whichever view you take, you're kept. You're kept. And in that keeping, the most important aspect of it is is that you are not spiritually lost. No one can take your soul. No one can cause you to turn uh, away from Christ. He is our keeper. He has promised. He has given us his word. So the final exhortation. The church is to remain faithful till he comes. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. Just as they have been keeping and preserving and obeying that word, we should keep preserving and keeping and obeying that word till he comes. The church will be rewarded for its faithfulness when he comes. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. See, those who are faithful till he comes will be given eternal life with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven. All right, that's at the very end. And he says that's the reward, that's what you get. You are going to be a partaker of the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven. That comes at the end, not at the beginning. In my own new name. All Christians are to learn from and apply the truths that are declared to the seven churches. Revelation 3.13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what he says specifically to the churches indeed applies to us and uh, we are not uh, taking things, uh, promises out of context, Uh, we are not uh, appropriating for ourselves things that are only true for the seven churches. He says, anyone who has an ear to hear, okay? If if, if God has given you that ability uh, to hear and understand his word, this is for you, this is for you. These are promises to us. Uh, So I say to you, God is pleased when we remain faithful to his word, in preserving it and keeping it, and by obeying it. That is the essence of what it means to be faithful. And then he goes on to say not to deny his name, to be willing to identify and associate with Jesus Christ. That's what they are commended for. And in doing that, they receive no condemnation. There is nothing negative that he has to say about them because they are preserving his word and they are uh, seeking to obey his word and they are faithfully identifying with him. They have meager resources, they have little influence, but God is well pleased are as well pleased. May God allow us, enable us, empower us as we look to him for that help to be steadfast, holding on to his word, seeking to obey it, identifying with him and he has promised to watch over us and protect us. And ultimately that is the fact that we are going to be in his presence for ever and ever to be partakers of the new Jerusalem, the Uh, heavenly city that's coming down out of heaven to this earth for he holds the keys to death and Hades he has opened a door that no one can shut Uh, that entrance into his presence is by his power and his power alone so let's pray our father thank you for your word thank you for your promises Uh, thank you lord that uh, you know us you love us, and you have promised to keep us. So, Lord, we give you praise and honor and glory, and we seek to be faithful to you, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. and you are to-